across South Africa, online and on radio. SAFM, let's talk. Thank you so much for staying with us. As you know, September is Heritage Month, but this is really, really amazing what I'm going to tell you. So hundreds of ancestral writings were discovered by heritage publishers, and these are going to be made available to all of us. And it's really, really exciting works here. These are works that date back to the 1700s. Well, Terence Bell uh, Ball is, um, is a publisher, a heritage publisher. To tell us all about this wonderful, wonderful discovery, this was in conjunction with the University of Victoria. Terence, thank you so much for talking to us. Good morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much indeed for having me. So, so these writings, who discovered them where? Well, in our, in our research uh, for a series of publications we produce called Our Story, which tells about the plans and events that shaped Southern Africa, uh, we came across this uh, collection, uh, extraordinary collection of about 891 different writings yes. in seven indigenous languages. And, um, you know, uh, Siswati and Zindabele did not exist as written languages in those years. Yes. These documents were written between 1930 and 1950 and cover all aspects uh, of our history and culture etc., etc., the various peoples of Southern Africa. Um, the university has scanned in about half of the manuscripts. Mm. I should explain that the initial documents are handwritten in most instances <laughs> and were then typed up on a typewriter at the time of writing. <laughs> I mean, this um, is extraordinary. And, yeah. It is. It is. Uh, it, uh, as, as we say, and I think it's no exaggeration yeah. at all, it is a once-in-a-lifetime event. So, uh, um, uh, and it's an incredible privilege to so, be involved in this project. Absolutely. So they obviously were written, as you said, around between 1930s and 1950s, but these are people who themselves had grandparents and, and stories who, who, which, which they could date back to the 1700s. They could bring that information to the fore. Well, yeah, I mean, what we say is uh, uh, one of the authors, a Susutu Salibua author, mm-hmm. um, mentions that in uh, 1939, when he wrote the manuscript, he did so after interviewing the oldest man in the village, mm-hmm. who was considered to be about 80 years old. So the point we make is that he was born around the 1850s wow. um, sometime. And if he, uh, if his grandfather was alive, he would have heard stories uh, told to him about his people from the late 1700s. Uh, so literally, when one talks about um, oral tradition and generation to generation um, transmission of oral tradition, we are suddenly going back several generations um, and hearing firsthand about the craft techniques. Um, the initiation ceremonies, the cultural practices around birth uh, and death, uh, the history of clans, um, it's its extraordinarily fascinating. The, this is, I mean, a collection of works from academics, um, people who, who are scholars, and it seems to me like a deliberate attempt for them to gather information as much as possible and document it. So this was quite a deliberate attempt by, by these scholars to, to actually document what our history was. 
Uh, absolutely. And the most well-known of the authors is uh, a gentleman called Dromo, R.R.R. Yes. Dromo, yes. who, in fact, um, was the first person to have an Isizulu novel published. That was way back in 1929. Um, and he writes a fairly lengthy document about all aspects of the um, tradition and history of the Abanguni clans uh, in KZN. Another example I'd like to make is, you know, I'm fairly familiar with uh, South African clans, and mm. I came across references to the Mfatla and the Bele, mm. and I'd never heard of Mfatla and the Bele before. Mm. any rate, uh, I think I should just read this to you. The opening yes. line by Mr. Nawa yes. reads, The Letsula king called Mazwe from KwaZulu-Natal has ruled before King Shaka and Mzlikazi. This king was different from his brother because of initiation. They were fighting over kingship. That is why Mazwe fled to the city with his followers. Mazwe was married to two wives. The first wife, Musito, and the second wife was called Letsutsu, and who was matriarch of all the Matsutsu people. After Mazwe's death, his son Motlasedi ruled the tribe just like his father. Motlasedi went to Lesotho and settled in Putapitsana, where he later died. Thereafter, his son Selapedi ruled the tribe, and he had a son called Maila. They then moved through the old Transvaal, and they had some conflict initially with the Bakratla clan, and then Ngunifad the name, Tumfasla. Uh, and it seems they have a very close association with the Bakratla Balenswe. Uh, and it's, as I say, it's, I've never read anything like this anywhere. <laughs> so I'll tell you, Terence, I'll tell you why this is so important, as exactly what you've just read there. The, so many people's histories was, were, was lost in, 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 in trying to adjust to the times. So, um, either changing names because of circumstances, apartheid also brought with it its own issues. So people's names were mis, misspelled and incorrectly. All sorts of things happened where there was just a loss of trace of one's history. And this is going to be such a revelation to so many people about why they are who they are and how they become who they became. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's it just gets more and more extraordinary. We were fortunate to find what we believe is the only existing writing by an Isizulu mother tongue speaker, mm. uh, a member of the Shezi clan on the Bambata rebellion. All of the writings that exist currently are viewed from um, either a European perspective mm-hmm. uh, or an Italian administration perspective. Now, the Shezi clan were instrumental in that battle. They formed the heart of the resistance against the hut tax imposed on uh, the Abanguri in KZN. So that is fantastic. I read of a man born in Masia, mm-hmm. which is a remote rural village in northeastern Limpopo, and he tells us that he was born during the reign of Chihuahua. Mm-hmm. Now, Chihuahua was a Portuguese, João Albacini, who became a chief of the Vatsonga. He wow. tells us something about Vatsonga custom, then he tells us he came to a small village called Johannesburg to work on the Robinson Mine in Johannesburg, and he then went to Kimberley to work on the diamond mines where he was paid two pounds a week, which was that. a very princely sum in those days. <laughs> and it's just spellbinding. Oh, it really, really is. I'm also looking at some of the works here by Amahomusha. I mean, that's another group that we don't hear much about. Well, exactly. And the interesting thing about the Amahumusha is that um, they were also called the Amahazimani. Mm-hmm. 
Now, um, it is said that they considered themselves to be descendants of slaves. And they were mixed groups. There were white people, colored uh, Ngunis that were living together uh, in that part of the world around Ladysmith. Now, in my research, I discovered that there's an area called um, um, Zimani mm-hmm. in Mozambique. Mm-hmm. And Amahazimani, I think, is probably the old form of uh, the people of Zimani. Amahaziman. So there's a lot of work to be done, but it is fascinating because we're told that they didn't have a chief uh, determined by birth. Um, they they elected their chief. Um, <laughs> wow. But wow. They spoke Afrikaans, Zulu, I suppose it would have been a Dutch, but form of Dutch and English. Uh, so, you know, long before apartheid was legislated, people were living together quite happily in mixed groups. Well, also, um, then, this brings to the fore the complexities of, of of what politics was like. So the idea that, as you said, that it's always been that African tradition is that people are born to be chiefs. Well, democracy yeah. has its origins elsewhere as well. No, absolutely. And I mean, the other impact this is having is on language. Mm. Because when we do the transcriptions in the indigenous languages, obviously we are updating the orthography. Mm-hmm. Uh, so of the X in, in uh, uh, Susutu Salibua, the, the, the well-known politician Tokyo Sekhwale, is now KGA. Yes. Um, so we're updating that. But it's bringing to the fore words that even mother tongue speakers are not familiar with. Um, I don't know if you speak Susutu Salipua, but Sedu Nedi Sana Nedi. And that is a comet that you see in the sky, Ali's Mm. Comet. Sedu Nedi Sana Nedi is the name that was given by our ancestors um, to that object. Uh, And it's not uh, exclusive to Susutu Salibua. Mm -hmm. It's very clear in our other indigenous languages as well that words have fallen into misuse. Mm -hmm. Disuse, rather, not misuse, disuse. Disuse, yeah. Well, this is this is absolutely amazing, um, and and this is just the beginning. And I'm really looking forward to the work that's going to go into really going delving in deep into, for instance, who these people are. You you're looking to find their their their, their descendants, right? Correct. We're trying to find the authors. Unfortunately, only in relatively few instances do we have uh, a full name um, and the last known address of these authors. As you pointed out, many of them were educators um, and taught at schools uh, around the country. Um, And we are now trying to use our Facebook page, social media interviews such as this to say, please look at the information, look at the author's names. Do you know anybody uh, with that name from that area? Uh, And and can you possibly help us uh, to trace where they are resting? The, let's let's go back a little bit, if you don't mind, to the actual handwritings, Terence. How yes. eligible? How eligible were the handwritings? Well, it varies. A lot of it was was very uh, legible um, okay. and and very carefully and clearly written. Remember, in those years, people didn't have um, certainly our indigenous language speakers didn't have the confusion of possibly using a keyboard. Yes. And not writing, they had to write as a kind of everyday practice, yes. uh, which which is not necessarily the case with a lot of people today. Yes. So I think it's fair to say that the handwriting was far more legible <laughs> than one might find <laughs> today. Um, 
Um, and I'm then not... thankfully also, obviously, they were typewritten. But clearly the typewritten documents are themselves fading, which is, is wow. one of the reasons why we have to retype um, all of these documents. First in the indigenous language, and then in order to promote social cohesion and understanding between South Africans of, of all colours and, and clans putting them into English. We, we, you're talking of the fact that some some languages were not handwritten languages at a specific time, Isiswati, for instance, being one of them. The, then Correct. how did, then, then, then what happened there? Well, Zindabele and uh, Siswati mother tongue speakers were obviously instructed in Isizulu. Oh, I see. So um, the writings about those clans mm-hmm. uh, are in the main, in Isisulu, um, okay. but a lot of the writings about the Amandabele ah. are either in Setswana or Sisutsalibuwa. Oh, I see. Okay. I mean, what process are we going to embark on to try and find these relatives? Well, we've just started this campaign, um, and I'd call on the help of the ancestors. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> because it is going to be a huge challenge, yes. but it's something that we're tackling with great relish, wow. um, and, and we hope that uh, we are going to be successful. I'm sure that we will be able to track a number down where they taught at schools mm. or missionaries, um, uh, missions, um, but we'll just have to wait and see. I think I must relate one little other interesting tale that I found absolutely fascinating. And that is that a group of Vavenda were attacked by a clan unknown. The name is mentioned, I can't remember it, but it's not one that I knew about. Mm -hmm. They then sought refuge um, under the reign of the rain queen with the Valadez. Yes. And they spent some time there, uh, and when these the people, the clan who had chased them away, left those lands, they returned to where they came from. Mm-hmm. And some while later, they returned to thank the Balabedu for hosting oh. them. And they planted the first bananas in Khamujaj. Wow. Uh, and it's very amusing because the author, who is a uh, uh, Lobet, yes. says that our ancestors viewed these plants with great suspicion until they tasted how lovely they were. <laughs> Can you uh, imagine? <laughs> and I mean, I, when you think about it, the banana looks quite strange, actually, as a, as a fruit, as opposed to many mm. others they may have been uh, exposed to. So. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I, and I just, I, I, I wait with anticipation for, you know, new writings to come in. Um, so because they are just spellbinding. They I, are absolutely wonderful. Can I plant a seed, Terence, please? That Certainly. when you do find these these uh, these people um, who are connected to these writers, how wonderful it would be to actually you know read these and and document them in voice, so that the you know people who um, are are blind are also able to to you know to just relish in this wonderful work. So Absolutely. that maybe you know that maybe they're recorded as well. I absolutely support that. I mean, I've always thought what a wonderful way to revive the oral tradition, which Mm. sadly is dying, uh, or is dead. Um, Yes, there are professional actors, um, you know, who who tell traditional tales uh, in a a compelling way. But it would be wonderful to try and use these tools as a mechanism um, to, to, to revive oral storytelling. I tell you what, this is going to be a gift. Uh, I can only imagine when you do find uh, the descendants of some of these people, just what a gift it's going to be. It's a gift to us, those who don't even know if any of our ancestors no. wrote this. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. 
Well, yeah, thank you. And I, mean, you know, I, I know that uh, amongst the Vatsonga, certainly in Amashangana, we'll be able to find people quite easily because yeah. I know the relatives of some of the writers. Wow. Santuisi uh, uh, is one of them, um, and, and uh, there are several others. Um, mm. But it's, it's an exciting time. I, I, I honestly feel like a... A child before Christmas, <laughs> you know, waiting for your presence. You should see me. You should see me, Terence. I'm told that every Sunday we're going to get a, a slight glimpse into this. You're going to be publishing these uh, on the City Press. That's correct. Yes, today is the uh, first extract, yes. uh, which covers the Bambata Rebellion. Sure. Uh, next week is a piece on the Bata, which is also very interesting. Um, and again, uh, the way our ancestors worked, because it tells the story of um, the king, once his people had settled down, sending uh, a group of his men to Khimi mm-hmm. to, to get a missionary, I mean, for this. And they came back with uh, Reverend White, an Anglican missionary. Mm-hmm. He started a mission there. Uh, and the king then um, realized that uh, uh, the priest didn't have any children, and he gave one of his sons, Bertie and Tupai, to the, the, the priest. The priest went back to England, and Bertie married an English lady, a white English lady, <laughs> and the author tells us he died in 1938 and he's buried in England. Would you believe three days later I had a phone call from the South African High Commission in London? No. And the person, I could hear the person speaking to me in English was, uh, is it was a speaker. Yes. He was phoning me about an unrelated matter. Yes. And he is a butler. And so I sent those writings to him, and he has already approached the British um, Heritage Association to see if we can trace Bertie's grave. Uh, And that's a practical example of hands-on heritage um, and and how these writings can, can impact on us today. It's just absolutely spot on, Terence, because it's so easy for the British. They they had real wonderful archives there, and you know they they've documented people very well. So, it it's going to be so simple actually to trace the grave. I can bet you it's going to be very simple. Absolutely, you know, and I mean, I know I sound eccentric, but you know, what are the chances of yeah. reading a manuscript <laughs> about Amabata and being phoned two or three days later by somebody who isn't Amabata, who's living in England? You, 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 you know, the chances are, are rather small, I think. No, 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 no. You said it yourself. You said, you know, it's up to the gods, it's up to the ancestors to assist us in all of this work. So you believe it? I think it's going to happen. I think it's going to happen. No, we, we, we we'll be working hard to make it happen. It's it's such a wonderful treat. Thank you. This has been a real gift. Thank you, Terence, for talking to us. Thank you. A great pleasure. I'm so glad that you found it interesting. It really is. Uh, Terence Ball is a publisher at the Heritage Publishers. Um, and this is really work that it starts today, in fact. Go into the City Press today and uh, the very first of the, the, the works will be published there for a couple of uh, weeks. They're going to be releasing these amazing pieces of work, heritage writings that were discovered uh, very recently. And this is the work that has been done by the University um, South African Heritage Publishers as well as the the University of Pretoria.
These are works that date back to the 1930s. However, the information sitting in there comes back from, what, 1700s about our history. And these were scholars that made it their business to to very quickly document our history as told to them by their great-grandparents or the elders in the community because they felt that it was dwindling. So um, oral tradition was in itself dwindling, and so how are we going to be tracing our own heritage was becoming a problem and so they made it their business to put it down. I think this is an absolute treasure and an absolute gift.